0: So, we began a study through the book of Isaiah several weeks ago, the Old Testament prophet, and this morning we're going to be considering chapter 9, verses 1 to 7, which speaks of the birth of Christ. So, very appropriate that we are lined up for chapter 9 this morning and the Sunday before Christmas. Um, so, if you can turn and have your Bibles open there, if you wouldn't mind standing in honor of God's Word, and I will read those seven verses here if you'll follow along as I read. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Join me as I pray. God, we thank you that you are not silent. You are not aloof and disinterested and disengaged with your creation, with your creatures. Thank you that you are a speaking, revealing God. And you have spoken at many times and in various ways through prophets just like Isaiah. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear this message that was penned by him so many years ago. And Lord, we thank you also that you spoke in a final and full way through your son. This child, this son that this text speaks of the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And I pray that we would see Him in all of His glory and that we would trust in Him. So Lord, please, uh, I pray that You would teach us this morning from Your Word, that You would give us soft and receptive hearts to receive Your Word. I pray that You would fill us with the peace and the joy that Jesus came to give us. And Lord, we ask it all in His precious and powerful name. Amen. Okay, for any of you that may be not familiar with the storyline of the Bible, um, maybe you only come to church once or twice a year around Christmas or around Easter. And this is for the rest of us as well, even if you regularly go to church Every week, Let me just give you a quick overview here, in a sense with an eye to the passage that we're going to be studying here in Isaiah 9. Um, so it all starts appropriately in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, which means we're not a cosmic accident like Elizabeth and Rollins. We didn't evolve from prim- primordial soup. There is a designer behind all of this and God had a purpose for his design. He made us. He made us for himself. We were created in his image to reflect his radiant character just like the moon does the sun. So he spoke into the darkness in the beginning, into the nothingness, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. His word created all that is in this universe from stars that are the size of the the orbit of jupiter do you know there are stars out there that big probably bigger that would fill the orbit of jupiter our sun is just an average star so his word just spoke all of that into to being his omnipotently powerful word so everything from those ginormous stars down to quarks bouncing around at the subatomic level, and then he formed Adam and Eve, and he gave them more words. His words were intended to give them light and life, and the words that he gave them were incredible blessing, they were freedom, and then there was one prohibition, and the purpose of that prohibition, not to eat from one particular tree, was so that they wouldn't die Now, have you ever wondered why, as a child, and maybe some of you children in here experience this now, some of us bigger kids, it was a while ago, but as a child, you used to think that there was a monster under the bed, right? Well, ultimately, the reason that we think there's a monster under the bed is because there is a monster under the rug of the universe. God's enemy, Satan, slithered into the garden After God had created everything perfect and he called God's word and his good character into question. And Adam and Eve bought those lies. They ate the fruit and they plunged the human race into darkness. It's where death comes from. It's where all the brokenness and suffering and evil that we see all around us and see within us. It's where it comes from. We've been buying the lies ever since. If we're honest, we know that the darkness and the evil in this world is not just out there. You know, it's not just with the terrorists or the murderers or the thieves. It's in each and every human heart, each and every human heart in this room. We are all born bent and broken. You don't have to teach a two-year-old to disobey. It's quite natural for them. Even when the instructions are transparently loving and for their good, it's just natural. So you may not have murdered anyone but we've all hated people in our hearts. We've cut people down with our words. We've stabbed them in the back. You may not be a felon guilty of theft, but you've taken things that are not yours. You've cut corners, shaded the truth for your own advantage. How about lust and covetousness? How about selfishness and pride? How about a critical or a complaining spirit How about failing to love our neighbor as ourselves? How often have we shrunk back from opportunities to love and serve because we care way more about our own interests than the interests of others? How about failing to love God with all of our heart? So these things are much more pervasive than we'd like to admit. And they are all what happens when we turn away from God like we're supposed to be moons to the sun. We turn away from God, in on ourselves, and we are self-reliant and self-serving and selfishly ambitious, and we're walking in the darkness. So every human being on planet earth has done this. We're, we're not all as bad as we could be, but we are all bent and broken all the way through. Our minds, our emotions, our attitudes, our actions, everything. Everything. So the Bible, God's Word, tells us the honest truth. It, it shines light into that darkness. We're much worse than we care to admit. We, we love to try to look around and compare ourselves with others. You know, maybe God's going to grade on the curve. But our insecurities and our anxieties and our fears actually betray us. We know we haven't measured up. So some people, though, you know, they act better than most, and they can get pretty confident in their self-justification, self-righteousness. I'm better because I'm better. We're often blind to that self-righteousness when it's present in us, but we see it really clearly in somebody else, and when we see it, we know what it is. Pride, self-righteousness, it's ugly. We don't like self-righteous people. So, a significant part of the Bible storyline is showing us over and over and over again that we are bent and broken, and we need the mercy of God. We need Him to save us. The Bible also makes it abundantly clear that God is both incredibly patient and gracious, and that He's a just judge who will never bend or compromise or fail to do what's right. So, Maybe that's good news, but maybe that's really scary because we're bent and broken. Okay, he's gracious and merciful, but he's just. Uh oh. Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. They ate of it. He didn't say, ah, let's go best out of three. They eventually died. They were cut off spiritually, they were ashamed, they knew they were naked. But God came and he was gracious. He sacrificed animals and clothed them, covered their nakedness. But they were kicked out of the garden with his people, the Israelites in the Old Testament. Time and again, he rescued them, like when he brought them out of Egypt by Moses' leadership. But they're grumbling, they're complaining, and he had to judge them. And the adult generations all died in the wilderness. They didn't get to go into the promised land. So here's the thing. All leading up to our passage in Isaiah. By the time we get to the book of Isaiah, here's the situation. Under King Uzziah, after Solomon, Israel, the people of God, had been split into a northern and southern kingdom. King Uzziah had reigned over the southern kingdom for, for 50 plus years, and he had just died. Under his reign, you know what? The kingdom had prospered, but with the prosperity, they stopped relying on God. They stopped listening to and trusting his word. They were self-reliant and self-centered. And then some political military threats grew strong and they took matters into their own hands rather than trusting in the Lord. They trusted their own wisdom. They looked to buy military allies in order to save themselves, okay? So God sends the prophet Isaiah to them rather than listening to this gracious word, light into their darkness. Hey, come on back. You've got to trust the Lord. Instead, they stick their fingers in their ears when Isaiah is preaching. So here we are, chapters 8 and 9. I want you to just look at the end of chapter 8 so that you see where we've come from. Look at Isaiah 8, verse 20. So eight, chapter 8, that's the big, bold number. And the little numbers are the verses. So if I say 820, that's chapter 8, verse 20. It says, To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Okay? So basically, to God's word, you got to listen to God's word. You should run to that. If these people will not speak according to God's word, it's because they're in darkness. Okay? Because of their repeated, persistent rebellion, God's going to judge them. He is in control of history. He can move kings and political superpowers like pawns. And he is going to send the Assyrians, the superpower of the day, to to conquer Judah eventually and lay them low. So as a result, things are going to look like this. Verse 21, they will pass through the land. These are the people that have stuck their fingers in their ears to God's word, the light to dispel their darkness. They pushed it away. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Okay, so this actually happened historically. But there's nothing new under the sun. These kind of patterns happen over and over again. If we reject the light of God's word, we will walk in darkness and experience the gloom of anguish. could be closer to home than you'd like to admit that dynamic. So this language describes what we fear. We fear the closing of the aperture. It's what happens when the best days lie behind us. As human beings, we always want to see some some light ahead. We have expressions for it like, at least I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Or, oh, it's a new day. Meaning the darkness of the night is past and there's light and hope and new, new possibilities on the horizon. We fear a dark future. We want a bright one. All kinds of things can threaten with darkness and gloom. So for them it was the Assyrians... A little different for us. Economic uncertainty, job loss or unemployment, depression, aging, cancer, other debilitating diseases, relational loss, rejection, on and on and on. So here's what this passage is all about. Look at point one on the outline. It should be on the slide. There's also one in your bulletin if you want to follow along that way. Here's what this passage is all about. God turns shame to glory and he turns darkness to dawn he turns shriveling to flourishing and he turns gloom to joy anybody interested? so that's what's going on here in verses 1 to 3 and then what's going to happen is we're going to see how he brings that about in verses 4 to 7 okay so that's kind of the outline of where we're headed so look at verse 1 but there will be no gloom or who, her who was in anguish. Do you see the reversal there? The end of chapter 8 said, Behold the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. No hope, no future. But then verse 9 comes on the scene, and God has brighter days planned. He has hope up His sleeve. In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Okay? Now, Chad has a slide here. I know this. So when, you're, when we're going through Isaiah, and if you're not real familiar with the Bible, you can be a little bit put off by all these historical things. that you, I don't have a clue what that is all about. Uh-oh. Well, that might be a worthless slide. That's um, not Chad's fault. Uh, um, anyway, maybe I can just explain it verbally. So... If this is Judah and this is Israel, the northern kingdom, Zebulun and Naphtali are up here and Assyria is up here. So who gets hit first? Zebulun and Naphtali. They get the lash first. Okay? So they feel the brunt of this threat first. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So it was the first region to be overrun by Assyria. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land between, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the, of the, of the nations. So God's going to turn their shame into their glory. They were the first to be invaded, and now they're going to be the first to taste the freedom of liberation, to have the light dawn on them. Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them Has light shined? So these are big, sweeping historical movements that are being described here. In fact, this wasn't fulfilled until hundreds of years later. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. So if you're using a Pew Bible, you can find Matthew chapter 4 on page 809. So Jesus has just come onto the scene. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. He was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, and he was victorious. He didn't fail. And he's beginning his ministry here. And look what it says in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. It's the Sea of Galilee. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So why did he do that? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them... A light has dawned, and from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then it goes on to say how he called some of his first disciples to follow him. Okay? So, back now to Isaiah 9. Do you see how Jesus is the light that has dawned? He is the light of the world coming in and where did he come to? He came to this very area that first felt the lash, that was shamed for so long, and now they're going to be honored with the presence of the king, the light breaking into the, the darkness, the light dawning. Look at verse three. "You." Isaiah writing, he's referring to God. You, God, have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So what happens when when light dawns, when this light dawns? People rejoice like they do at harvest or after a great military victory, okay? Which, unfortunately for most of us, probably, we just don't really resonate with that because, you know, we just go to the grocery store. And we can get pretty much anything any season of the year. But if you are an agrarian society, harvest is a big deal. And especially if it's a good harvest, that's a really great time of rejoicing. Because there is abundance. And you know what? If you are constantly under threat, and you're going to get stomped on by some bigger kingdom, if instead of becoming spoiled, You experience victory, oh man, you're going to be rejoicing. So basically, in the the expressions of the day, Isaiah is picking two of the best illustrations of just the height of joy and rejoicing, okay? We shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said that he came, that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be full. Okay, so instead of the people of God shriveling up, they're multiplying. You've multiplied the nation. Instead of hunger, like at the end of chapter 8, if you remember, there is joy like at harvest. Instead Instead of being the spoil for conquering kingdoms, they are glad like conquerors dividing the spoil. So this is an incredible reversal that is taking place. And we see that it all happens at God's gracious initiative. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Just like we can't make the sun come up. We can't make the dawn break. That's God's work. Well, here is His work here, initiating. God demonstrates His love in that while we were still sinners in the darkness, He sent Christ, the light of the world, breaking into the darkness like the dawn. So, All this joy, multiplication, flourishing, all of this is happening. How's it going to take place? Um, I've kind of hinted at it already, but look how the text goes on. It happens by liberation from oppressors. Look at verse 4, second point here. How's this going to happen? How's all this joy going to happen? For the yoke of his burden... And the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you, God, have broken as on the day of Midian. Okay, so God is pictured here like a freedom fighter fighting for his people. It echoes Egypt, right? They were under the yoke and the burden and the oppression of Egypt, under Pharaoh's heavy hand, under his staff. And what did God do? He Broke it and broke him free. He liberated them. He delivered them. And then this Gideon reference, this day of Midian. Again, if if you are steeped in the history, like Isaiah's readers would have been, you know, if I say let me, if I say like D Day or like V E Day, we probably have connotations, right? Because we know, hopefully, some of our country's history. Well, if you say to an ancient Israelite, like in the day of Midian, they're like, oh, Gideon. So the Midianites were, were, you know, pressing in this massive horde, all kinds of threats. You know, every time we had a harvest, they would come in and just wipe it out. And, and so we were basically living in famine conditions. And basically all the crops that we raised were just feeding these, you know, cruel oppressors. God raised up Gideon. And he's he's hiding in a wine press trying to thresh his wheat so that that the enemies don't see it, so he'll have something to eat. And the angel of the Lord comes and says, Hello, mighty warrior. And he's like, who? Mighty warrior. Is there one of those in here? It's not me. He's pretty weak. He's the, you know, weakest in his clan, he thinks. But God's going to use him. In fact, God wants to make it really clear that he is going to use him, that it's going to be God's might exercised. So he raises up this army, about 32,000 soldiers to go against the Midianites. What happened? God said, uh, you guys might take credit for this. The army's too big. Let's, let's just cut that down. Anybody scared? Go home. Okay, so 22,000 left. There's 10,000 left. Uh, still too big. Okay, go down to the water. I don't know what that whole lapping thing was all about, but um, basically God whittles the army down to 300. Okay, that's about enough to go against a horde of, you know, oppressors. So, the Lord is going to break the yoke, free you from the oppressor, as on the day of Midian. It happened like that. Okay? So, He worked this mighty victory through a relatively weak little band of soldiers. God's strength was put on display through weakness. And the mighty were thrown down in an instant. So the joy that's spoken of in verses 1 to 3 is going to come about through liberation and maybe through liberation that is power perfected in weakness. Well, how's that liberation going to happen? Well, let's keep going. Third point, how? By silencing the threats. Look at verse 5. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Okay, so liberation is going to happen by the silencing of the threats, okay, for Isaiah's audience, I mean, we just, we just don't know what this is like because thankfully, by God's grace, we sit in a country that's very safe and secure militarily. But where they were located, there were threats above, threats below, and man, stomping boots coming your way. When you've got the weaker position, you're in trouble. That's a scary sound terrorize you. And the Assyrians were known to be vicious. They would skin people. They would put them on stakes. They would hook them by the nose and drag. It was just brutal, brutal stuff. So imagine how the liberation that would come, that's spoken of, by means of no more war, that's what this image is all about. Hey, if the boots and the garments are being burned up, the the weapons are obviously a (laughs) non-issue. Okay? So there is no more oppression, there's no more war, and so they're liberated, and so they're filled with joy and abundance. Now, how is all this going to happen? So the joy comes, do you see the progression? The joy is full because of liberation. The liberation happens because there's no more war. All the threats are silenced. How's that all going to happen ultimately? Verses 6 to 7, by giving us the peace child. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So the kids sung of it, we sung of it. There was another child spoken of just a few chapters earlier in chapter 7. And we should see the connection between the child in chapter 7 and this child in chapter 9. It's the same child ultimately. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel." God with us, okay? So God is working out these global sovereign saving purposes with, you know, superpowers like Assyria and all of this, and he's going to do it all ultimately over the, I mean, this is hundreds of years ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He's going to bring it all about by means of a baby. A weak little child born of a virgin will eventually put an end to all wars, And bring about the greatest liberation the world has ever known and give his people the joy that they've always longed for. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, this child, this son. And guess what? If you look back in verse 4, do you see that? The yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder. So before it was oppression under the... Staff resting heavily on your shoulder. Now the government's going to be on his shoulders. So the burden's on him, not on us. Okay, do you see that sweet contrast? So he bears the heavy yoke, so that the yoke that he gives us is an easy and a light one. Sound familiar? Matthew eleven twenty eight. a little bit later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's good news. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay, and here's where we need to be sure to camp out. And I don't just mean this morning camp out. I'd encourage you to camp out here as much as you can in the next few days because this is something that you could ponder and never really plumb the depths of. Okay, so listen to a quick summary here by a commentator named Alec Motier. The book of Isaiah is noted for significant names. Emmanuel and Isaiah's sons, the names of his sons had meaning in the book. The book of Isaiah is noted for significant names, both foreshadowing coming events and also embodying the word of the Lord. In the king's fourfold name, The first two elements match his earlier name of Emmanuel and the second two note the conditions he will bring about. God has come to birth bringing with him the qualities which guarantee his people's preservation, wisdom, and liberation, warrior strength. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace describe the conditions the king's birth will bring. So let's take them one at a time and just savor them. Okay, so Jesus is the wonderful counselor. So Oprah, Dr. Phil, fill in the blank, all of the repetitive self, self-help drivel that you can find at the bookstore that's all over the place, it doesn't hold a candle to the wonderful counselor. When his light dawns in your heart, the darkness and the shadows and the threats have to flee. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So when the dawn breaks, not only do we see Jesus, the light of the world, but he gives us eyes to see the world and see everything else because he's the wonderful counselor. He leads us into truth, he makes us wise. So when Jesus was on earth, he he couldn't be backed into a corner or caught in debate. He's a wonderful counselor. He's full of wisdom. But he didn't use his wisdom to gloat and browbeat. He used it to call people out of darkness into his marvelous light. Because he's so good. All the other kings, they wanted to... You know, boast in how wise they were, how strong, how heavy their yoke was. They kept their people under their throne. No, no, Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my word, burden is light. I'm only going to use my wisdom to try to bless you, not to exploit you. So he said things like this in John six don't work for the food that perishes. They, their God was their stomach. They were just enslaved to kind of common appetites. And he's saying, whoa, 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 I know you've got to eat, <laughs> but don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. I am the bread of life. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Receive my wisdom, my food, my life and light, okay? And then his wisdom as the wonderful counselors ultimately displayed in the apparent folly of, and shame of the cross. So, so many thought it was weakness and defeat. So many thought it was just proof that he was a foolish imposter. No, no. It was the wisdom and the power of God. Listen to the way Paul wrote of it in 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written... Quote, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? And then he goes on to write, Has not God made foolish the wisdom, the so-called wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So it seems so weak and foolish, and yet the cross is actually omnipotence exercised to liberate us from the the heaviest depressing power of sin. And omnipotence exercised wisely to deal with the greatest threats and to give us true and lasting eternal joy. So he's the wonderful counselor. He's also the mighty God. Okay, Jesus could use his might to just crush his enemies immediately, which, unfortunately, that would be all of us, so there'd be nobody left. (laughs) So instead of crushing his enemies immediately, he died for them so that he could reconcile them to his father and make his enemies, his friends. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When he was on earth, how did he use his power? He didn't didn't do miracles like magic tricks to show off. I love this quote by Tim Keller in The Reason for God. He talks about the purpose of biblical miracles. They lead not simply to cognitive belief, but to worship, to awe and wonder. Jesus' miracles in particular were never magic tricks designed only to impress and coerce. You never see him say something like, see that tree over there? Watch me make it burst into flames. Instead, he used miraculous power to heal the sick, feed the hungry, and raise the dead. Why? We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. That is Jesus, the mighty God. That's how the mighty God uses his power. Sweet, you could continue to meditate on that one for a while. He's also everlasting father. I used to be kind of confused by that one. Hey, Jesus is supposed to be the son of God. How can he be the father? Anybody? Anybody? You're not going to admit it. Okay. So I always thought that was kind of weird. You know, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son. Okay, no. Again, we have to think, get back into the ancient Near East. How would they have heard that? And oftentimes a king would refer to himself as a father to his people. Sometimes it was done in kind of like a condescending pat on the head sort of way. I will be a father to you, you know? <laughs> not this king. He doesn't exercise his leadership that way. He certainly doesn't abdicate that, that, that responsibility. He willingly bears that burden. I will be your everlasting father. But he exercises that leadership, that provision, that protection, that care like this. This is how this everlasting father king speaks. Jesus called his disciples to him when they were saying, hey, who's the greatest? They were jockeying for position. And he said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. If you're going to follow me, it shall not be like that among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Why? Because even the Son of Man came, the greatest king, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the same king that took up the basin and the towel and washed his disciples' feet. So aren't you glad that his leadership is not passing away? Everlasting Father? It's good news. And then finally and climactically, he's the Prince of Peace. So he is perfectly whole and integrated at peace with himself. He knows who he is. He's got nothing to prove. And he is perfectly at peace with the Father, and he comes and lives and dies so that he can reconcile us to God. And when that peace has dawned in our hearts, then it starts to break out as we are peacemakers, and we are reconciled to others. So he is a king and a warrior, he's a prince, and he will one day remove all threats, and he will liberate us from what oppresses us, and ultimately, this is not a promise of political liberation, this is a promise of liberation from the tyranny of sin and pride and selfishness. We are enslaved to ourselves. He came to free us from that. And so his conquest in the here and now is the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, after that whole Zebulun and Naphtali thing in in Matthew 4, he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm here. So turn from all that darkness. Turn from all that selfish ambition, all that self-reliance, all that self-centeredness. Turn and follow the king. Follow me. Trust me. I'm the prince of peace. And the gospel of the king, the gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of peace because he's the prince of peace. That's what he's spreading. He's not making war. One day he will. He's not making war now. He's making peace. That's what he's spreading. The gospel of the kingdom is the gospel of peace. When we hear peace, sometimes I think we just think, You know, kind of like a peaceful, easy feeling. Okay, thanks. Um, That came to mind just on the fly. I wasn't wasn't theatrical. Um, So just, you know, a a feeling of peace. Biblical conception of peace is so much more robust and, and thick. Peace in the Old Testament and in the New, really, is holistic human flourishing. So, when your body has cancer and it's fighting against itself, that's not flourishing. When there is warring, so your body is at war with itself. When there's war between you and another person, conflict, there's not peace and flourishing. There's division and strife and all of this, and ultimately, when we are not at peace with God, we are at enmity with him, hostile to him. So Jesus, the Prince of Peace, he's the one that can bring full and and pervasive human flourishing. It starts internally where we stop, we stop trying to prove ourselves. (laughs) We accept what the Bible says about us. Remember the storyline at the beginning? We accept what the Bible says about that we really are that bad. Okay, I'm gonna stop running. I'm gonna stop trying to justify myself. I can't. I'm guilty and all of a sudden you're honest with yourself you're, you're in the light and rather than running and shrinking and hiding in the darkness and trying to dance and justify and rationalize you're in the light and he says you've trusted me I forgive those who trust in me I wash your sins away as far as the east is from the west so you're justified because of what my son did in your place, he died, and all that sin, all that stuff that's making you nervous existentially, it's already paid for. You're free and clear. And all of a sudden, you can be at peace with yourself. You can know who you are. You're loved by an everlasting father. Won by the Prince of Peace. And then, that security, that gospel security, starts to leak out and overflow into your relationships. So do you see how people that are reconciled to the Father, they know the peace that comes only through Jesus, they become peacemakers and the gospel of the kingdom spreads. And so, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Right now, it's fits and starts. A lot of people still stiff-arming Jesus. And there's a lot of strife and a lot of warring. But you know what? This is where everything is headed. (laughs) The church's preview of things to come, coming attractions, when there will be no end to this peace. It will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So I'm not a big fan of big government, but here's big government you can believe in. (laughs) With Jesus at the helm. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. In fact, that's exactly what you're praying for if you ever pray in the Lord's Prayer, Your Kingdom Come. You want His rule and reign to gather more ground, more hearts gladly, willingly submitted to King Jesus now so that they know His rescue and liberation and joy. Because one day, like it or not, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you don't turn and trust in the Prince of Peace, the King who brings a gospel of peace, if you don't trust Him in this life, when you face Him, you will be forced to bow the knee. So this message, you're here this morning to make sure you are at peace with the Prince of Peace. And when that happens, when that light dawns in your heart, this is really good news of the increase of his government and a peace, there will be no end. You watch the news, you, you read it online, and everything is just like, oh, a mess, a wreck. We don't have positive connotations with government in very many places in the whole world, do we? Lots of corruption and graft and and spin and manipulation and power corrupts and all this. Well, guess what? There's good news. <laughs> The king on the throne is the prince of peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there'll be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Dawn is broken. The full day is coming. The sun is rising. It's rising. Keep trusting him. Keep following. Bring as many people to Jesus to be reconciled the sun is, is coming, and one day it's going to shine in full strength. Because eventually, justice and righteousness are going to be pervasive when Jesus returns and sets everything to rights. You know what? In the new heavens and the new earth, when, when Jesus comes back and everything's all, all things are made new, if a car could break down in the new heavens and the new earth, can't happen. Okay? I don't think we're going to drive cars. Sorry. Um, Mr. Williams Um, it's okay we don't need that job in heaven Um, but if they could break down you would never have to wonder if your mechanic is trying to pull the wool over your eyes because he's going to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore when you scroll through Amazon you know buying gifts for Christmas if we were to do that in the heavens and earth we're not going to do that You would never have to read any reviews. There would never be any safety recalls, no cheap workmanship, no cut corners, no fear of getting ripped off, no need for suspicion anywhere with anyone. Because you know what? Under Jesus' good rule, justice and righteousness flourish. Don't you want his kingdom to come? So imagine that. We are suspicious all the time in this world because people don't submit to the kingship of Jesus. They haven't embraced the gospel of the kingdom and submitted to and trusted the Prince of Peace. We're suspicious all the time. And in part, you know why? (laughs) It's because you know yourself. You're not always perfectly honest. I'm not always perfectly honest. We let our interests or our advantage cloud our thinking, don't we? We manipulate to get what we want, to avoid what we fear, and you know others do the same thing. So much insecurity, so much jockeying, so much selfishness in this world, making the world a miserable, fearful, uncertain place with all kinds of threats. We've got to survive, so we do what we have to do to survive. <laughs> and this word, this light breaks into all that and says, whoa. If the Prince of Peace is at the center, if, if anybody on the planet is going to be light and salt, it's going to be light, it's going to be the people of God that they don't have to jockey for position. They don't have to, to, you know, manipulate to get what they want. They've got a Father who loves them that's going to take care of them. And they are gladly submitted to King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who rules with justice and righteousness. He's taking care of them. So into this world that's so broken and bent and self-centered and selfishly ambitious and prideful, how does God deal with all this? Come down yelling at us like an exasperated parent? No, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and he's a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. It's amazing, given our natural penchant for rebellion and darkness given our pride and our self-righteousness self-centeredness <laughs> so how do you think the lord accomplishes all of this what's his heart in all of this you know we're so slow to learn we're so prone to wander what's his heart like in accomplishing moving all of human history toward the day when when it would be nothing but righteousness and peace you think he does that reluctantly You know, you screwed up again this week. He probably just barely puts up with me. Begrudgingly, you think that's how he does it? You think he does it half-heartedly? No, look at how this passage closes. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Folks, God is not wishy-washy. He's not a vacillator. He's not indecisive. He's not apathetic. He's not indifferent. He's not aloof or disinterested. He is zealously wanting to work that liberation and joy and peace into your soul and into this world. That's really good news. He is doing it with all his heart and his soul. I think the reason we shrink back sometimes is because we think, can we really trust him? Well, remember the story? Did God really say he's holding out on you? You can't trust him. That's what got us into this whole mess in the first place and brought the darkness So, Isaiah says, to the testimony. (laughs) Listen to the word, the light, the wisdom of the wonderful counselor. So, let me close with some words by Ray Ortland, and then we're going to respond appropriately by singing a song that is a prayer, really. It's, It's another way of saying, your kingdom come. It's crowned him with many crowns. When, when we say your kingdom come, we say we want you to rule and reign over my heart and over my family and over my relationships and over my work and over other people that need to bow the knee to you. So it's, we should sing it appropriately in response to this truth um, in prayer. So let me close with these words and then we'll, we'll sing and be dismissed. So who is this all-powerful new figure striding across the world stage? Through what magnificent person does the zeal of the Lord renew the world forever? God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. His answer to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. When we get close enough to the secret of world peace to see it clearly, what do we discover? Against our expectations, we find weakness, overwhelming power, and foolishness, outfoxing wisdom. Everything else has failed. God does not need our strength or brains. Jesus Christ crucified is the only Savior and King of the world. Look at Jesus. As the wonderful counselor, He has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow Him. As the mighty God, He defeats His enemies easily. Let's hide behind Him. As the everlasting Father, He loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. As the Prince of Peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies. Let's welcome his dominion.